Howdy how, this is Aswi and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, everyone? After an interesting, maybe unexpected night one of the NBA season, I'm here with my guy, Eric. What's good? To break it all down. So at the risk of making some overreactions based upon a one-game sample size, we're here to overreact to a one-game sample size. So why don't we start with that Nets game versus the Bucks? What did you see from there, Eric? Uh, I saw the Nets get slaughtered and like, I don't want to overreact to the Nets losing because I, I think we're very well aware they're without Kyrie who may or may not play this season. But that being said, the Bucks looked great. They looked great and they looked great even with like the stupid traditional big lineups that Bud ran last year with Brooke Lopez being the actual center and Giannis playing the four. But whether it was that or Giannis slotted at the five, they were like just generally overpowering the net. So I was a little surprised at the disparity. It seemed no matter what lineup was on the floor, the like disparity in talent difference last night in execution. It's worth saying, Eric, that the Bucks were missing some critical pieces, too. I mean, Drew Holiday leaves after what's reportedly a, a bruise right heel. He only plays 18 minutes in this game. We didn't see any minutes for uh, Dante Givincenzo, who has yet to play since his injury last season. So it wasn't like a whole Bucks team either. But I want to zero in a couple of things you mentioned there. You talked about being overpowering. I thought that was really clear. I, I thought that advantage was really obvious when it came to the glass. So not only did the Bucks collect 10 more rebounds in the Nets yesterday, they pounded them the offensive glass with 13 offensive rebounds to only five from the Nets. And also, they just felt overall like a team that was united, playing together. They were swinging the ball around. They had 25 assists on 48 made field goals. That's an excellent ratio. And in a game in which Durant played pretty decently well, Patty Mills came in red hot, hitting seven of seven threes, and James Harden was doing his typical creation. The Bucks were still able to pretty much consistently outscore them throughout, getting contributions with a bunch of new faces along with the typical dominance of Giannis and Chris Middleton. So, Eric, what did you think about what we saw yesterday from Jordan Nuara specifically, and even maybe Grayson Allen? Jordan Nuara looked really good. Uh, Grayson Allen, <laughs> I didn't even realize he was on the squad until last night. They have another guy who can space the floor, create a little, and then we have of course, a healthy Dante DiVincenzo back. So they're going to be like a team to reckon with. So we know it was a big deal when DiVincenzo went down last year in the playoffs. Now they have a little insurance with a guy like Grayson Allen. I even thought Giannis' brother and spot minutes looked really, really good last night. So I, I don't know. I, I was really surprised at how cohesive the Bucks looked. It seemed to me that this was a team that instead of having an offseason, it was almost as if they had the continuity of a team that was just playing games a couple of days ago. They looked fantastic. And Eric, you mentioned earlier that 
basically they're so much better when Giannis at the five. And one of the reasons they haven't been able to go to that lineup as much as we'd probably all like is that they just didn't have the depth on the wing to do that, especially once Dante DiVincenzo went down last season. Pat Connington was sort of the guy who stepped up last year. And again, yesterday, he scored 20 points. I thought he looked fantastic. He had some really good drives, finishing on, on pretty decent contests by the Nets through contact. But now that they have the addition of Grayson Allen, yet another guy who can space the floor, and Jordan Nuara, who I thought, apart from just having some good size and giving them some slashing, he looked like a guy who could also create a little bit off the ball. You can kind of throw the ball to him, and he had a really quick first step. He was blowing by guys. So now you start accumulating multiple players like this. You can you can trot out those Giannis lineups at the five much more easily because you have more cover. And let's not forget that they also added George Hill, who didn't play particularly well this game, nor did he really play all that well for Philadelphia last year. But he's another guy you can rely upon to not make mistakes. And when they do go big, I think Brooke Lopez once again showed that he is still very effective at doing certain things. And one of those things is protecting the rim. Between him and Giannis, they just had arms for days, and it just felt like anything in the paint was a bit of a grind for the Nets. Yeah, facts. I mean, the Bucks won by 20-plus points. So even if you consider like Kyrie not being there or Bruce Brown, for whatever reason, not playing, it was still such a sizable difference without those guys that if they had those guys on the court, it would be a very competitive game. And that's if everything went right for the Nets. So I personally might have, I guess, downplayed what the Bucks' potential could be this year because, like, last night they looked like world beaters. I totally agree, Eric. We haven't even talked about Giannis Antetokounmpo, the reigning finals MVP, who once again was completely dominant in this game. He had a block in this game that I, I'm not sure that there's really anyone else in the NBA who can quite make this block. He just had his arms sort of reach for days and he just completely shut down what would have been a, a clear layup. And then throughout the game, he was able to get to the paint at will. He has this incredible ability to drive and it looks like there's still people in front of him, but he does this Euro step that kind of just goes all the way around someone and then he just lays it up uncontested. He was completely unstoppable physically and also picked up 14 rebounds and seven assists as well. And I think when we are looking at this matchup long-term, we have to acknowledge that despite the Nets having a plethora of former All-Stars, none of those guys has a prayer in hell of stopping Giannis. Yeah, facts. I, I definitely agree with that. Giannis can give all of those All-Stars defensively. He can give those guys fits. None of those guys can give him fits. There's not a person amongst them that can stop Giannis when he's playing like this version of Giannis, yeah, there, there's nothing to deter him from getting his. And that was pretty much the case last night. Even when Blake was on the wing, putting a fairly valiant effort and stopping Giannis from getting to the hoop, it was nothing he could really do. So I don't know who you put on him that he's not going to get at this point 30, 15, and 5 at least. So have fun with that. Swinging a little bit to the net side of things, I thought Durant looked spectacular. He was taking contested shots and they were just falling as if there was no one there in front of him. Harden did his part creating, got some really easy lobs and, and, and just easy looks to Claxton in particular. And we, we talked a little about Patty Mills briefly, but I, I think what a luxury having that guy on your team now. I mean, this dude has long been one of the great 
shot-making point guards in the league, a guy who can get red hot off the bench. And just to have him sort of fill in while Kyrie's in his, I guess, self-imposed leave of absence for lack of a better term, it's just such a luxury to have a guy like Patty Mills. But it does beg the question, that, and you kind of hinted on this, Eric, where exactly is Bruce Brown fitting in this rotation? Because on a night where basically everyone on the roster played a little bit and in which they've established pretty clearly they're going to run a 10-man rotation, Bruce Brown only got four minutes last night. He was behind the likes of, just on the wing alone, behind guys like James Johnson, Javon Carter, uh, Joe Harris, obviously, and, and Harden and, and Durant. Not to mention all the bigs like Claxon and, and Blake and LaMarcus and Millsap. So he's going to be squeezed for time a little bit here because I thought he was a super valuable part of their team last year. I think the addition of LaMarcus back to the team means that someone's minutes had to go down if they were running a 10-man rotation. And it, it's it's seemingly, and it's early, he might be the odd man out. Uh, when LaMarcus went down last year, with his like medical issue and he briefly retired, his minutes went up. So I, I'm not exactly certain how that's going to work out rotationally. It might just be an early season blip and they're trying to like see what lineups work best. But he was really, really effective, as you said, AC, last year. So it was a little surprising to not see him getting at least 15 minutes. I was really like taken aback by that. So we'll see. One big positive for the Nets in this game, which I think is an easy transition to our next game, is that they are starting Nick Claxton at the five and they just don't have a guy named DeAndre Jordan on their roster, which brings us to our next game, which I want to be very clear here in, in the Lakers versus Warriors game. It's not like DeAndre Jordan was the reason that the Lakers lost this game. There was a lot of reasons why, but... It's telling to me that DeAndre Jordan, who could not even get not even one playoff minute for a Nets team that badly needed some additional body, especially going up against someone like Giannis last season, is now somehow the starting center for the Los Angeles Lakers. So why don't we start with DeAndre Jordan? What did you see out of him yesterday? I saw that he's trash, basura, like hot garbage. I, I don't know what else. <laughs> I don't know what else you want me to say. Like. We were texting last night, AC. Yeah. He's the worst, like, defensive starter in all of the league. Like, it doesn't make any sense how bad he is as a defender. And I guess that's what he was being sold as the last couple of years. Like, he's no offensive savant. Even at his best, he never was. He was a guy who caught lobs and he played defense. But he doesn't play any defense at this point. I think his shifts were okay from, like, a plus-minus perspective and things like that. In part because he's still, by virtue of being big, you know, he allows him to do certain things schematically. But especially against a team like the Warriors, where so often you have to come out and trap. And and DeAndre was a guy who was doing that. I thought his initial trap was okay. And and when he had to be sort of dropping schemes, he's still big and long. And he you know got a couple of deflections and he is in the right position here and there on that first rotation. But once the Warriors make a single pass, he did not make any sort of effort to sort of fight back into the play or come back. Or, or there were times where on a drop, there was a lob thrown and he didn't make any effort to even jump and sort of prevent the pass. But I don't even think it's the defensive end that really is the problem right now with DeAndre Jordan being on the team. In fact, their total lack of bodies might be the reason why they had to play him at all. Just have some sort of a competent innings eater sort of guy. But when he's there, even at his best, he's just 
not the kind of center you want to pair with Russell Westbrook right now, who just needs space so badly, and it's star for with a starting lineup. Yeah, so I don't understand why, if you were going to do this big lineup, which it seems they have to do right now, just because of like injuries, if you were going to do this big lineup, personally, I would have started Dwight. But that being said, you mentioned how Russ needs to operate. Can't operate if he can't drive. We've seen this at this point his whole career. We we know how he's effective. So if LeBron is your best shooter or floor spacer with Russ there, because you also have DeAndre Jordan on the court, Russ isn't going to do anything. And last night we saw Russ wasn't able to do anything. Like Russ was taking some jump shots that I think were fairly ill-advised and he just didn't have the driving lane and I'm not even blaming Russ for this we know what Russ is it's going to be a rough like sled for the upcoming two months or so when they're still figuring out the best lineups to get Russ going I can see this getting worse before it gets better and let's be honest Russell Westbrook was atrocious yesterday he was a team worst minus 23 and you know, sometimes plus minus can be deceiving. Not this night. He looked every part of it. He had four turnovers and seemed kind of reckless. He was taking bad shots. Zero for four from three-pointers. In my opinion, that's four three-pointers more than he should be taking. But I think the Lakers failed Russ in two critical ways. The first way is in the lineups in which they put him on the floor with. And part of that is just due to injury. They just have too many guys who are injured right now. And they have to throw out guys like Rondo. They maybe probably didn't intend to play this much or DeAndre Jordan. But when he's on the floor with at least one of the guy who has no range at all, and, and basically the entire game he played with at least one to two such players, whether it was Dwight and Rondo, whether it was you know Jordan and, you know, the LeBron Davis combination, which while being able to shoot aren't really truly the kind of shooters that other teams fear, it just completely clogs the lane for him and forces him into a jump shooter. But the second way that they failed this guy is that when he was on the floor, he was almost entirely playing off the ball. And right off the bat, whenever he's with LeBron, LeBron has the ball and Westbrook is just out there at the three-point line camped out. He can't really do anything else. I didn't see much cutting from him. There was like one really beautiful cut he had, and that was like about it. He just kind of just stood at the three-point line and teams were happy to leave him open. But even when LeBron was not on the floor, for some weird reason, he was often paired with Rondo. And kind of paradoxically, Rajon Rondo is actually the better shooter between the two of them and should be the guy in that situation who is off the ball. But instead, Rondo had the ball in his hands and Westbrook was off the ball with him either. So Rondo would penetrate and they would just leave Westbrook wide open. He'd kick it out to Westbrook and Westbrook would miss. And then sometimes the reverse would happen. But I, I still think that Westbrook needs to have the ball in his hands, especially when LeBron's not on the floor, but even when LeBron is on the floor. What do you think, Eric? Couldn't have said it better. First off, Russ and Rondo just should never be playing together at the same time. Russ, in theory, is a rich man's Rondo without the ability to shoot threes. So, like you said, it should be Russ driving and Rondo off the ball if they have to put them on the court at the same time. And even when LeBron is on the court, the ball needs to be in Russ' hand because LeBron's more capable of playing off ball than Russ. So I, I don't exactly know what they were doing last night and why, considering Russ's whole career, 
they don't know <laughs> that Russ cannot play off the ball, but they kept doing it last night, and that horrible stat line and plus minus that you saw, that was an indicator of the foolishness of the lineup. You know, I, again, I'm less concerned about the lineups personally because I, I do think that there were some real problems just with having a healthy roster of guys to even play. There's just so many guys down right now for the Lakers. But like a, a simple thing, right? If he's playing with LeBron James, why can't LeBron be the screen setter for Russ? Because LeBron is, is a far better threat rolling off of that or even popping off of that than Russ is. Or if you want to use Russ with Anthony Davis, then LeBron is a better spacer out on the floor than Russ is. So I, I would have liked to see a little more of that. I know that ultimately, when it really comes down to it, LeBron's going to have the ball in his hands. Do you think that LeBron could be used a little bit more as a screen setter, Eric? Yeah, I do. Um, at times, they did that in Miami. So LeBron hasn't done it a lot, but he has done it. When he played with D-Wade, they would run that like option sometimes just because D-Wade has some of the same limitations as Russ. They weren't quite as bad, but the limitations existed. So LeBron at least has a history that he can be utilized that way. So I don't know why last night we didn't see it in action. And maybe at some point Vogel will do it. But it was a little disheartening seeing how they were running them together on the court. It just, it didn't seem to be the best way to maximize Russ's abilities. I mean, you don't have to even go as far back as Miami. Remember, LeBron was a pretty devastating pick setter for Alex Caruso many times last season, or even for Schroeder, right? And even for Kyrie and, and even for Matthew Del Vadova in Cleveland. So he's proven that he can play that role. And obviously when it really comes down to it, you want him to be the decision maker, but he can at least make things easier for Westbrook. Another really simple thing they can do to just try to unlock Westbrook a little bit more is to just completely stagger LeBron and Westbrook. The time when LeBron is off the court should be exactly the time that you give the ball to Westbrook and say, all right, do whatever you want to do. But a lot of times yesterday, there were lineups out there where it was Rondo and Anthony Davis, and, and those lineups tended to struggle yesterday. Not as badly as the Westbrook ones, to be fair, but still, that's the time you give Westbrook the ball and say, you know, do whatever you want to do and give him a license to just kind of monopolize the ball and, and become sort of that triple-double threat that we've seen over the last few years. But you know what, AC? I'm guessing that the logic that Vogel and his coaching staff is using, Russ and LeBron, they will have to be on the court together in closing minutes at some point, right? Yeah, that's so, fair. So they're probably, at least in these early games, trying to get them as many reps as possible where they're both sharing the court. And I do think a lot of this will be solved by just having Kendrick Nunn play a lot of those Rondo minutes because I think... All of a sudden, then, like, the non-Westbrook lineups can work. So maybe just kind of keep the rotation somewhat consistent, the minutes somewhat consistent. But I couldn't help but think yesterday, aside from the Westbrook part of this, that the Lakers, who were the number one team defensively in the NBA last season, with Anthony Davis missing a ton of time and LeBron missing a ton of time as well, they looked like, honestly, frankly, a bottom five NBA defense. What did you see from them on the defensive end? Oh, they were horrible. I mean, we did a retrospective on a season like a couple of months ago, and we spoke about some of the moves that the Lakers made in a trade deadline and how that would affect them defensively. 
And I was being fairly optimistic because Frank Vogel has a history of being such a genius defensive coach that they would be able to make these parts who individually have never had a history of being good defenders. He would be able to make them at least into a, a decent, cohesive defensive unit. But seeing them last night play together, and I know, again, we're one game in, so I don't want to be hyperbolic about this. I don't think that he can make them into a good defensive team. They're just going <laughs> to have to find a way to outscore everyone because Melo was getting minutes. And, I, like, I don't even know what Melo was doing last night. Not only was he never in the right place, like, whenever he would help, he would help at the wrong time. Like, he was late on rotations. You had Russ who... Russ, surprisingly, was at least in the right places, but he just, I don't know, like he has some limitations like with lateral movement. And then you had like, um, Kent Bazemore actually was really good. We spoke about how bad DeAndre was, but you have so many guys, even if you talk about the Lakers having plus defenders and Anthony Davis, who went healthy, I think he's the best defender in the league. LeBron actually was really good last night, but he was really good on defense last year. They have enough guys that are going to get significant minutes that it seems like they're going to nullify all of the good defenders that the Lakers have. Yeah, I want to touch on some of the specific players you mentioned there. I thought Carmelo Anthony was atrocious last night. I mean, you're absolutely spot on when you point out the way that he was helping. He would just help off of people randomly. Like, he would help on a drive where... The guy wasn't even really beat who was guarding the, sort of the initial action. And then he was just giving up a wide open three-pointer. And then other times, he didn't do like the basic thing that you have to do in the scheme. Late in the fourth quarter, it was a pick and roll where Avery Bradley was on Steph Curry. And Melo just camped out in the paint and didn't step out to Steph freaking Curry. And immediately after that play... Frank Vogel just benched Carmelo Anthony. And I I think it's going to be a really interesting case to see how much patience Vogel, who is a notorious defense-first coach, a guy who values that end of the floor a lot, how is he going to balance the reputation of Carmelo and what he can potentially provide offensively with his incredible limitations defensively? In the podcast you mentioned, Eric, where we, we talked about some of these off-season moves, we kind of analyzed the advanced stats that showed that over the last few seasons, Carmelo Anthony has been one of the worst defenders in the NBA by basically every single advanced stat imaginable. And it looks like he's just as bad to start this season off. He's a Trey Young level bad defender without at this point. Now, it was different when he was younger, giving you the 28 and 10 that Trey could give you at any given time. So... I don't know how they're going to mitigate that, but it seems to me that Melo is good for like 10 to 15 in spot minutes, but in those spot minutes, he's going to give up 20 to 25. And that's just not a guy that you could be given much run. It was really bad and it's going to be bad. He's not going to get better on defense. He's not going to, he's not going to play good defense. This isn't one of the things that Frank Vogel can coach up because for the last five or six years, he's been awful on defense. And I, I do think that the Warriors present particular difficulties for this personnel grouping. Like they demand you to effectively trap Steph on every pick and roll. And then they pass well enough that your team has to make rotations behind. 
That's something the Lakers were very good at the last few seasons. This lineup, even at their very best, they're just not going to be good at making those kind of rotations outside of, say, AD and LeBron and a few guys like that. But with defense, often you're just as bad as your worst defender. And you can survive having one bad defender. The Lakers rolled out several at one point yesterday. I mean, Rondo has not been a good defender for some time. And I thought another guy who was really bad defensively and who the numbers also show up has consistently been bad is Malik Monk. He's not only small, which has its own limitations in terms of being able to contest shots, but he gets blown by on like the first move way too frequently. And that's a guy who I think the Lakers are counting on to be a key sixth man. But if he can't find a way to contribute on the court, once all their players are back, I'll be surprised if if, if Monk actually plays a big role this season, unless he can at least be like relatively passable because this is still a Frank Vogel team. AC. The Warriors won by seven points with LeBron having 30-plus points and AD having 30-plus points, where their best two guys looked in, like, championship form last night. They won by seven points, and Steph Curry shot five for 19. How many times is Steph Curry going to shoot five for 19? This is a problem. (laughs) The Warriors weren't anywhere near their best. And they haven't even gotten Clay Thompson back on the court yet. And they still won by seven points. That tells you how flawed the Lakers are. And it's all on the defensive end. A lot of it, well, let me not say all. Most of it is on the defensive end. They have a lot of issues offensively with spacing. But they still put up 114 points last night. So usually 114 points for the Lakers of the last two years is a Lakers team that's winning the game by 9 or 10 points. They lost by 7 points. I am worried. And, you know, this is the overreaction pod, so we're allowed to sort of overreact to one game. But I actually thought that the fact that LeBron and AD scored like this is something that I don't feel sustainable whatsoever because they scored on really difficult jump shots, a lot of mid-range shots. How many fadeaways did LeBron hit last night? Like four at least? AD hit some crazy contested like rainbow shots as well. What I noticed more than them making all these crazy shots was how difficult the shots they took were. What was completely lacking that we're used to seeing out of the Los Angeles Lakers, and specifically these two, are those dunks and layups in the half court that they get when they have good spacing around them and lineups were 80s at the five. It felt like every time LeBron would blow by his guy, there was two dudes standing there and he would take a fadeaway or make the right pass. Same with AD. I just worry that this team is not going to be able to create the space needed for those guys to dominate consistently. They're both capable of making incredible shots and winning games, but you can't rely upon that to have sustainable offense at this level. And see, the beauty of the championship Lakers from two seasons ago with LeBron and AD was... Those two guys generally generate easy shots (laughs) and nothing was easy last night. And it was because of the spacing. And like you said, AC, they're not going to shoot over a 50% clip on these difficult shots every night. That's just an unreal expectation of both of them. You want them to be getting as close to the basket as possible, making these high percentage shots around the room. But right now, the lineup they have, that's not going to be possible. By the way, you want an incredible stat? Okay. The Lakers 
prior to this game had 113 games in which LeBron and AD each scored 30 points. They won all 113 of those games. This is the first game in their shared history together, which isn't that long, but they played a lot of games in which these two guys scored 30 points and they came up with a loss, which just shows how many issues this team has right now on both sides of the floor. It's a supremely flawed team. It's funny because if they largely ran back the team from last year and AD and LeBron were healthy like they are now and they both score 30 points against the Warriors, they would have whooped the Warriors' ass. But this team is not that team. Buddy Hill looking really, really, really good right now on that potential trade. Well, that's the other thing is, for better or worse, they're stuck with Westbrook for the next two years. The man just makes simply too much money. And if this doesn't work here, I don't, I just don't see who's interested in Westbrook. So they kind of had to make this work. Now, moving to the other team that was part of this game, I thought the Warriors were incredibly impressive. I was impressed with them really all preseason long. They've continued their you know solid defense we saw last year. The last year they were a top five defense. They show that that is continuing. They showed yesterday they could even weather an off-shooting night from Steph Curry, in part because of the emergence of a couple of young players. And one of those guys who's been really a standout since last season, but looks like he's taking his game to another level, and that's Jordan Poole. What did you see out of Jordan Poole yesterday? They're deep at guard. I Honestly, when people were saying that he was ascending, I thought he was a little bit of a, a flash in a pan, but he looked excellent last night. Like, really, really good. So, the Warriors, they actually have some depth. They're going to be a team to be reckoned with, and I didn't think they would be. So, it's already looking like my <laughs> prediction was wrong. I think this is a team that passes the ball incredibly well. They run really good stuff on offense. They're not stagnant, and they're really really good at using the incredible space generated by Steph Curry if you're an opponent and Steph Curry is in any sort of pick and roll action or even off-screen action you have to send probably multiple guys his way and the Warriors continue to be one of the best teams in the league at taking advantage of those four-on-three opportunities in part because Draymond is an incredible passer but also because they've now found, I think, a useful stretch five in Nemanja Bielica, who I think a lot of guys around the NBA had high hopes for his whole career. He's just not been able to stay healthy and sort of put it all together, but he's got a lot of talent. And between him and Toscano Anderson, you have Jordan Poole got red hot yesterday. And then obviously they'll play Thompson coming back at some point. Wiggins, who's turned a corner. They have options everywhere and I think keeping this team down in terms of scoring is going to be very very difficult for opponents all season long look for comparison's sake a guy like Jordan Poole who's going to shoot like 36 percent from three that guy would be one of the better floor spaces on the Lakers on the Warriors what is he like the fourth or fifth guy as far as spacing the floor no, it's it's so, a great point, Eric. I mean, it just shows a completely different philosophy that they've used to build these teams. And I think that the stats bear out that the Warriors' approach is the right approach, at least offensively. Now, is it the case that the Lakers passed up on, you know, once they got Westbrook, they probably tried their best to get spacing. But one of the problems the Lakers have is their best spacers are atrocious defenders. And their best defenders are poor spacers. So they're sort of in this no man's land. The Warriors, on the other hand, have personnel that can play two ways because you know 
weirdly, Andrew Wiggins has developed into a reliable three-point shooter at this stage of his career and also a reliable defender, neither of which we could have said about him before. I would, Clay I would go even further with Wiggins' AC. He's actually a very good defender at this point. I, I agree. I mean, he's finally leveraging his athleticism in a good way. And they have this sort of identity as a team and they, they know what they want to do on any given set. This is one of the reasons that, that Wiseman sort of didn't quite fit in last year because he couldn't make some of these reads. He couldn't make some of these passes. And it remains to be seen what he can do this year. But don't forget, on top of him, they also have Jonathan Kaminga, who they drafted this year, who has a lot of potential. Moses Moody, another young player who has shown some flashes. So they got this really cool mix of young, raw players with upside and then smart veterans who know how to play together and a perennial MVP candidate and one of the greatest players ever in Steph Curry. So I think this is a team that if Klay Thompson comes back healthy, you have to consider them one of the favorites in the West. Yeah, facts. Big facts. I, I think they're going to be, if last night was any indicator on an off night from Steph, they're going to be a terror this year. So yes, it's a lot to, it's a lot to like with the Warriors. There, there's a lot to dislike <laughs> with the Lakers. But you know, it's early in the season, so we'll see. So to wrap up then, Eric, I got one final question for you. Out of the four teams last night, rate your panic scale for the teams that lost and sort of your excitement level for the teams that won. So let's start with the teams that lost. One to ten, what's your level of panic for the Nets? For the Nets, uh, a six. That high? Really? Yeah, uh, and it's a six because I'm not sure Kyrie is going to come back. No, that's that's fair. I see. I I still think that they showed enough to me, even in a game they were basically completely outplayed by the Bucks. In my worry level for them is like a two, and it's basically entirely will Kyrie come back? I think they'll actually be fine even without Kyrie. They just had to figure some stuff out. They're facing a, a team that's very good. Probably, I mean, they literally won the championship, right? So the Bucks can't be yeah the, the can't, can't be can't ignored. Be. Yeah, you know what that's I mean? true. You're absolutely correct about that, but. My logic is, it seems to me, just off off of this one game, the Bucks are better than they were last year. So if they're better and Kyrie isn't back, I still have the Nets as the favorite on the strength of KD being KD and also playing with a perennial MVP contender and James Harden, who fits perfectly with KD. That being said... What would really push them over the edge to make them just like prohibitive favorites would be the inclusion of Kyrie. And I'm not sure he's going to come back. So I am a little worried. I mean, the the Bucks punched them in the face and it was just nothing that they could do about it. It was almost like Tyson Ferry versus Deontay Wilder or something like they were outmatched. So I'm I'm a little worried without Kyrie. So what about the Lakers then? The other team that lost yesterday, what's your level of panic for that team on a 1 to 10 scale? Oh, the Lakers uh, uh that's an 8. Yeah, I'm 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 really worried yeah, I'm, about I'm, the Lakers. I'm I'm going to really go higher than I'm going to say a 9 for them because Okay, I can see that because to me not only do they have serious issues in terms of their defense which was their strength, right? As you put it, if LeBron and AD are going to drop 30 each and play to their superstar potential, they don't lose those games because their defense was so good. You can't say that anymore. Now they can both play amazingly well and also lose just because their defense is going to be that bad and have so many random holes. 
And then, you know, even when they get guys healthy again, I just don't know if they can put together enough lineups that have sort of two-way potential. You saw Avery Bradley come in literally off the waiver wire and close the game out for them because it looked like Vogel was searching for anyone who could play defense and also hit a three. And so they're desperate in that sense. And they're also very limited in terms of roster shakeup. I mean, we, we talked about the difficulty of potentially moving Russell Westbrook if it doesn't work out. But aside from that, what's their other asset they have? I mean, the only other really tradable contract they have is, is Taylor Horton Tucker, who's out for two months. So it's not like they can audition him and then ship him off somewhere to fill in some need. And I, and I almost feel like they're, they have too many holes they can fill by one trade anyway. So I think they're in real trouble here. Uh, and for a team that a lot of people sort of penciled in as the Western Conference favorite. I'm not so sure. I mean, we haven't even seen these guys win a game, including the preseason. They haven't won a single game so far. And uh, by the way, it's not going to get any easier because upcoming next is, is Phoenix. So I guess we'll see how this Los Angeles team reacts to that. Now, Eric, what about the teams that won? I mean, how excited should they be on a 1-10 to 10 scale based on what you saw? Yeah, the, the Bucks. <laughs> I mean, they should be a nine or a 10, like a nine, let's just say a nine, because they seem to be like riding high. They just won the championship and they come into the season with a, a dominant win over their main competitor. So yeah, if, if I were them, I would be feeling like King Kong right now. Yeah, I, I would give the same for them. I think this is a super interesting and exciting development that they can come back and basically punch in the mouth the team that took them to game seven. And everyone says, oh, if not for... Durant shoe they would have lost well guess what they're proving that this is not the same team they were last year and Giannis and even coach Bud are not the same as they were and I, so that's really encouraging and on the other coast if I'm the Warriors I would be sort of a maybe about a seven out of ten excited about this team they showed a lot of good signs I think it'll remain to be seen if this was more about them being good or, or about the Lakers just really not being as good as maybe we thought they were but I think for them, their long-term prospects still hinge upon the biggest question mark, which is the health of Clay Thompson, which is something that none of us can predict. So it's exciting for them. They have a lot of young potential, but I think it's all dependent on what we see from Clay. Look, I, I will even go higher. I would say eight just because they just <laughs> weathered the storm where these two elite guys were still able to get theirs and their best guy didn't get his. And somehow they still won by seven points. At the very least, Clay Thompson coming back, he'll still be able to shoot. So just having that extra firepower with a team that seems to be versatile enough that they can win games that they're just not offensively just overpowering other teams. I would really be happy about that if I were them. So I, I think the Warriors could go out of this game looking at themselves as legit contenders. I, I totally agree, Eric. So I think we learned a lot from this first night of the NBA. But then again, it's just the first night. And if you look at someone like LeBron, for instance, this guy always seems to lose on opening night. And it has almost no bearing on his overall seasons and how they end up turning out. And that's just an indication to all of us that it's a long season with lots of up and downs, plenty of turns on that roller coaster yet to come. And we'll be there covering all of them. Thank you guys for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this. And until next time, peace out from Brown Men Won't Jump. Deuces! <laughs> <laughs>